Welcome to Wisdom of the Elders, the podcast. I'm Ron Alesco, and I'm here today with uh, Sonny Oaks, who is the founder of this wonderful series. It began back in 2010 at NERFA, the Northeast Regional Folk Alliance Conference. And each year, Sonny has been getting three people together at the conference and having some discussions about uh, various topics in our folk community. Now, it's called Elders, but that's... You know, I, Sonny and I disagree on this. I don't think it's so much age as it is experience and knowledge. And uh, I think we have three great guests today who are going to uh, to share that. Uh, before Sonny introduces them, I do want to uh, thank NERFA, the Northeast Regional Folk Alliance, who is co-sponsoring this along with Folk Music Notebook, the channel I operate. And I want to acknowledge our engineer, Aiden Lewis, who is uh, recording all of this for us today. Well, Sonny, uh, first of all, good to see you again. How have you been? I've been fine. <laughs> well, you've picked some wonderful people to be with us today. And I think, you know, as we're getting into winter and everybody's indoors, it's it's time to start thinking about festival season again. And I think the, that's the topic of today's show. It certainly is. And I've picked people from three of the best festivals around and really diverse. We're going all the way from Ontario down to Texas. I mean, that is quite a spread with a little stop over in Connecticut. We're starting out with uh, Dallas Allen, who was with the Kerrville Folk Festival, which is in Texas. And she's been with them for numerous years, which you'll hear about in a minute. And we have Mike Hill, who was very active with the Mariposa Folk Festival for many, many years, to the point that he even wrote a book about the festival about its first 50 years. And finally, Ann Saunders, who is the backbone of the Falcon Ridge Folk Festival, which was in New York for many, many, many years and has now been moved over to Connecticut, having to do with the COVID situation that we've been in, the pandemic. So you'll see quite a variety of, of methods of operation and, uh, and, and, and in the, the festivals themselves, they are all quite, quite different. Ron, you want to take over now with your first interview? Sure. Um, I, I, it, this is always a topic that's dear to my heart because each festival has its own community, its own feeling, and uh, we have three amazing festivals represented here today. And we're going to start by talking to Dallas Allen, who was the uh, director or producer of the Kerrville Music Festivals in Texas from 2002 through October 2019. But Dallas, you go back much further than that with Kerrville. You were uh, an attendee and, or was it a volunteer at the very first one back in 1972 when, when Rod Kennedy started the fest? Um, I showed up in 1972. I <laughs> uh, got in my mom's 1955 turquoise Chevy Bel Air and drove from Houston to Kerrville. And um, didn't have a clue really where what I was going to. I had, I used to um, when I was at the University of Houston, which we may get in, have time to get into later. Uh, I hosted what was called NEC conferences, which later became NACA, which was the University Booker's uh, opportunities for showcases. And I ran into. Ray Wally Hubbard of Three Faces West, and Alan Damron, and Steve Frumholz, and Travis Holland, and they said, well, we blame Alan, actually. Uh, you ought to go to this thing that's going to happen, you know, coming up. And I said, okay, sure, I'll go. And so I showed up and, and um, went to the, into the concert and became, ended up becoming a volunteer. 
at that point and was a volunteer, worked there part-time, full-time, and then when Rod retired, I became the producer. So that's the short version. <laughs> well, when you, you went there as a, a, a guest a fan just of the, of the music initially, you were in college at the time. Were, were you planning a career in music? Because we, we've been talking about a few other things that you've done, but uh, it seems as you've always been music-centered. Was that your original intent? Uh, not necessarily. Um, I uh, went to college, uh, wanted a degree and didn't know in what. And so, you know, there was always this generic home ec uh, that you could, you know, at least get in and get started and then figure it out. And um, some friend of mine said, I'm going to this meeting. You want to go with me? And I said, sure. And uh, it turned out it was Program Council, which was the university student organization for all the entertainment. It was film and concerts and fine arts and travel and publicity. And we use student fees to program fun stuff for the students to do. And I ended up joining and I was on the entertainment committee, which we did dances and that kind of stuff, which later morphed into doing all the big major concerts, like because um, we had control of Hoffheim's Pavilion. And so the entertainment committee worked with all the big promoters like Barry Fay and, and Michael Dunham and, and Bill, Bill Ham, I think, um, Rolling Stones, Carpenters, Elton John, Carol King, Hot Tuna, uh, you know, Tom Jones, uh, you know, those kinds of concerts. Uh, by that time, I was the president of the whole organization. But what happened with the entertainment committee initially for me is we did a spinoff and created a coffee house. And that's wherein I got hooked. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I started learning how to do booking. I mean, I was clueless. Sure, I'll start a coffee house and um, joined the Bitter End. Um, what was the name of that organization? They used to send you artists. You didn't know who they were going to be. You just signed up. And oh. um, I can't remember the like name. But college Coffee House or something like that. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Stan yeah. and Dan and Robin Williams before he had ever met Linda. And, you know, these artists would just be touring around and they'd throw them our way. And then I booked Lightning Hopkins and Mance Lipscomb. And I did bigger concerts with like Judy Collins and um, John Denver and had kind of a lot of access to everything that happened at the university through that organization. And like I said, I, when I left the coffee house, I became vice president, then I became president. And so that was kind of where I learned you know, the chops and how to do it and that it was interesting to me. And what I know for me is like people would just say, hey, you want to do this? And I'd say, sure. <laughs> you know, that's how I got Swerfa. Hey, you, you want to see, they asked me if I wanted to be the Diane Tankle of uh, the Southwest. <laughs> sure. Um, and that was in 2000. We started Swerfa. And so very gradually, things just always came up to me to run things. And so, you know, ultimately, it's like, okay, I guess that's what I, what I do. Well, you do a really fine job of it. I mean, Rod Kennedy started uh, Kerrville back in 72. And as you were describing, it seemed more like a, uh, a Texas-centric festival for songwriters at the time. Part of a, I think it was part of a heritage festival or something going on at that time? Uh, no, it was part of the Arts and Crafts Fair. Arts and Crafts, um, right. A, according to Rod's book, which is Music from the Heart, great book, great read. 
um, the governor said, okay, we have this arts and crafts fair in this little town, uh, destination town in the hill country, and we want heads and beds. We want people to stay over. They just come in, wander around, and leave. So can you promote uh, a music event, which is what he did in Austin. Uh, it was promoted, you know, everything, radio, and he was in radio and television, all of that. Um, probably wasn't much of anything he didn't didn't do in the music industry and um he said sure and he went and it turned it was in the like a school auditorium uh, in downtown Kerrville and it was just two nights in 72 and 73 and some of the famous pictures are with um President Johnson and Daryl Royal sitting in the audience those kinds of things and it took and for Rod what took because the first two years weren't necessarily songwriters. He had Crystal Gale and Willie and uh, Bearhouse uh, piano player and just, you know, quite a variety. Uh, I still have the, the, the programs. Um, he became impassioned by the artists that were there that were songwriters. And he said, okay, they don't have any support. Nobody cares what they do. Everybody tells them, get a real job. And there's tons of Celtic festivals and country festivals and bluegrass festivals. Nobody has a festival that is just for songwriters. And that became his passion. He just kind of created that out of, you know, those first two years. So from then on, 74, we moved to the ranch and it was only for songwriters to, to perform. Anybody could come and hang around the campfires and sing whatever they wanted, but he only hired uh, songwriters. And of As course, of course, the new folk competition, which was part of, of, of Kerrville for so many years, that's become such a, an honor uh, for, for all of our folk community. Uh, but we're, we're seeing the festival grow, and especially under your reign. I mean, you were I mentioning Rod was retiring. There was a chance that the festival would be canceled. And folks kept it up, and, and, and you took over, and you, you brought it through some, some rather... I don't know if I would want to use the word difficult, but through some from changing times, um, you turned it from originally a sole proprietorship and into a, a, a non-commercial run by the community. That that had to be a challenge. Well, and I wouldn't take uh, very much credit for that. I I promoted it, pushed it, agreed with the idea, um, but by that time there were other entities and boards and. There was a foundation that, that Rod had created that some other people created a different foundation, which I still have that original one kind of dormant right now. But um, And so, yes, and it's two different corporations. It got very complicated. It, it was three boards and two corporations and, you know, all of the stuff that goes with when you become that. Um, because before, Rod was a dictator. He was a benevolent dictator. It was his and he did whatever he wanted to. And basically, even through the time that I did it, we didn't really ever get in the money, if you know what I mean. I mean, it's, it's sort of like I, you know, our budget was always a hundredth of what most other festivals, and we ran for 18 days. Yeah. So that was always the biggest challenge when I was there. And then, you know, I'm, I don't really have any association with the festival uh, at this point, so I don't really know um, how it works. I know they got some of the the COVID money, that kind of stuff, to to help you know keep it going. Because it was always, well, we don't know if we're gonna have another year, you know, that kind of stuff. And and uh, yeah, many festivals have run that way for 
decades. <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling we're going to hear similar stories from our other guests as yeah. well. But uh, it's certainly challenging being in Texas and for 18 days. That's uh, that's something I've always loved about Kerrville. I, I keep hearing stories from songwriters who make it a pilgrimage each year to go to, to Kerrville. Um, how, how did all of that build? I mean, initially it was kind of, as we were saying, it was sort of Texas-centric, and then it kind of grew into the songwriters, as you're mentioning. But how did you build that community uh, from people from all across the country? I know Steve Gillette always talks about getting on a plane every year with a sleeping bag to, to stay for 18 days, and so many others do the same thing. It takes something special to, to create that atmosphere. Well, I would say it was Rob. Um, you know, of course he had people, you know, that helped or had his back or whatever, but he was a very um, driven, passionate person. And if he decided that's how it was going to be, then that's how it was going to be. And he, he was very good. Like I said, he was a promoter of all kinds of events and he was very, very good at saying this is the best. And of course there weren't that many other festivals at the time. We were kind of the grandfather other than, you know, with the ones we know about uh, Philly and, you know, Newport. And, um, and um, so he basically just said, this is the best thing in the whole universe and you should all be here and come and, and just created a community. And he also was very good at educating people in music that they might not think they would like. In other words, like he'd bring cowboy poets, really well-known cowboy poets. And people would say, Oh God, I'm not gonna listen to that. And then they would end up saying, wow, that was, that was actually amazing. <laughs> and, you know, and so if, if he wanted to do it, he just did it. And, um, and it was very eclectic and um, excellent. You had to, to, to be, you know, a really, really excellent songwriter. And we, uh, I started going to folk alliances with him in, what, 96, 95, 96, 97, somewhere in there. And they've gone almost every year since up till like last year. And so a lot of it developed through going to events like that. He always traveled to other festivals, a lot of Canadian festivals. We had a big Canadian connection. Of course, Stan Rogers and, and I brought Ron Hines and, and, you know, a lot of Canadian artists have come through. I used to go to ECMA conferences all the time. And, and um, so it was just, you know, kind of word of mouth and it was um, community. I think that more than just who we hired, it was that people came every year, camped with their friends. They had a special Kerrville family. You know, uh, they might not even talk to them all the rest of the year, but it was like, it's this become, and this has happened at many festivals, but the difference between a three or four day festival and an 18 day festival kind of lends itself to the, the level of connection and family and community that has grown and happened. And I think no matter what the people who run the festival do, that's the part that people come for and will that will never go away, you know, even if it's not on that piece of property, which is kind of unlikely, but you know, it's a 50 acre ranch that we also run that all year long. Um, it's interesting how, how it's grown and how you carried the, legacy and vision that Rod 
did. I mean, it's kind of easy when somebody new takes over to say, okay, we're going to do things differently now, but you kind of kept in that same frame and built upon it, which is, I think, why everybody respects you so much and why when it was announced that you were leaving in 2019, there was such a, a, an uproar, like what, what's happening? How are we going to survive without Dallas? Uh, can, can you tell us what led to that? Um, not really, uh, other than just change. People wanted something different and I was the face and there, there's some people just didn't want a face that was connected. They, you know, just wanted a change, I guess is the easiest answer. Um, and, uh, you know, it, I, I didn't expect to uh, die there. Right. <laughs> but I will say that, that leaving right before the pandemic was uh, somewhat of a gift. And, um, and I've had a lot of gifts in, even though I'm not associated anymore, um, there have been a lot of gifts in learning how much um, it meant to me and how much I mean to people. Well, you, you certainly are, are still involved tremendously with SWERFA, the Southwest Regional Folk Alliance. I mean, you, you kind of uh, became its founder, I think, of that. And was it 2000 that began? Yeah. That's got to be some challenges there, too, especially if, in COVID. How, how, is, how are things at SWERFA? They're great. Um, we have a lot of new people on board and uh, I'm no longer on the board. I'm the executive director and the conference coordinator. Um, and we didn't have live for two years, which is, you know, was typical. And we came back with uh, fewer attendees, which also was not a surprise. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the conference itself was, you know, was the same. It was beautiful and it was connecting. Um, and what I and we had a lot of new people. And so what I know is that all those new people are going to come back and the people who didn't come this year and, or no, and regret it are going to come back. And so I believe that by next year, we'll be back up to our to our usual numbers. And, um, you know, we have, like I said, we have a lot of new people on the board and, you know, new ideas. And, and um, I'm actually looking for uh, potentially someone to begin taking over the the conference, you know, stuff, you know, a piece at a time, probably. Sure. So you can go on to new challenges and new projects, right? <laughs> you got yeah, more plans, I, I'm sure. I have several going uh, and uh, you know, it's good. <laughs> great. Can't get rid of me that easy. <laughs> oh, we're not, we don't want to, believe me. Uh, but we do have to move on to our, yeah. to our next guest. And we're going to come back to, to you, Dallas, and talk a little bit more about festivals in general. But Sonny, I think you uh, have our next guest uh, lined up and ready to go. I just wanted to pipe in, Dallas, do you remember when I came down to help you start out Southwest? <laughs> <laughs> the very first year. I was I think the first three years at least to help you out. No, that was a quite a challenge and a lot of fun. Quite the adventure. Well now we're gonna go from Texas all the way up to Ontario to a town called Aurelia, and that's the home of our next guest, Mike Hill. And it was also the home of Gordon Whitefoot. So Mike says in his biography that um, maybe that's how he <laughs> I, I think Gordon Whitefoot is the reason Mike Hill became <laughs> greatly involved in the music community. Mm -hmm. Mike, uh, you started out as a music teacher? Well, my whole career, I was an elementary teacher. So 
when you're an elementary teacher, you have to be a jack of all trades, and and music became a, a big part of it because all through uh, you know through high school, like I learned piano as a kid, and then in high school I played in the school band, picked up the guitar, and and so music became sort of my specialty when I was teaching. Yeah, but I, I you know I don't know if I was uh, <laughs> I, I don't I don't know if I was an outstanding music teacher or anything like that, but. Uh, did you I teach should. instruments? Yes. Yeah. The, in fact, the last maybe 10 years I taught, uh, I had a, a band of uh, grade six, seven, and eight year old, or grade, grade six, seven, and eight kids. And uh, you know, we would perform at the local uh, other schools and at the, the Opera House, which is uh, a big venue in, in Aurelia. And, and uh, yeah, it, it was a fun, it was the thing I missed most when I retired, actually. My first adventure with the Mariposa Folk Festival was 1972. I drove across Canada with my two sons, and our first stop was in Toronto. And the Mariposa Folk Festival was on Centre Island in Toronto. And that turns out to be one of the major, major years of, of Mariposa history. Because yeah. there was somebody, I don't remember the entire lineup. I know Taj Mahal was there. I think Joni Mitchell was there. And there John were, Prine. John Prine. And there were rumors that Dylan was hanging out, but I never did see him. No. Well, I was there. I went to see a Canadian singer named Murray McLaughlin. And uh, and uh, he, he was just starting out at the time. And I got to his stage. And I, I was sitting about six feet away from the stage. And he said, well, I'm not going to be playing this afternoon. And, oh, I was so disappointed. He says, but my friend Joni Mitchell is here from Los Angeles. So Joni wasn't actually part of the lineup that year. She, and th this is when she had just broken through and become quite big in the States. So she got up and, and she did five numbers. And then she said, uh, well, that's it for me. And, again, we were kind of let down. And she says, but my friend Jackson Brown is here, and he's going to do it. And then the very next day, uh, Bruce Coburn was scheduled for a concert at about four o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, he stood up and told the, I wasn't there, but he told the audience, um, I'm going to give up my concert today because Neil Young has dropped in. Uh, and uh, this was when Neil Young had just come out with uh, Harvest and, and uh, still in his acoustic, uh, in the acoustic incarnation at that time. And yeah, and Gordon Lightfoot and, um, and Bob Dylan both did show up as well out of the blue, just um, the, the, there was no plan. In fact, uh, Dylan was going to get up and, and actually perform a song, but they were afraid that everybody would come running from all the other stages and uh, and create some kind of chaos. And Dylan actually came. He just wanted to hear Leon Redbone. That was uh, who was one of the uh, was one of the performers scheduled. Yeah. It was so a great that, year. That was quite the year, 1972. And then in the, I, I guess the festival started in Aurelia? Yeah, it started in Aurelia and it was there for three years. But um, Aurelia was only a town of about 15,000 people at the time. By the third year, there were 20,000 festival goers coming and they just inundated, you know, inundated. It was sort of like the, they had a riot at Newport uh, and I think it was 59 or 60. And th this was sort of Aurelia's version of that. Um, you know, the people were, 
after the concert, they flooded the downtown and uh, literally flooded it. They uh, used the the storefronts as, as washrooms and and uh, apparently there's all kinds of apocryphal stories how they were rolling beer bottles down the main street and and how the police were arresting people they'd put them in jail for uh, five minutes and then they'd have to get them out because there were only three jail three jail cells in the whole town and everybody was just overwhelmed and the council said no we don't want you anymore so Mariposa got kicked out and so you know 37 years later when it came back to town uh, there were still long memories. People were still worried about having a, a riot when, when it started back in Aurelia in 2000. But it wandered around Ontario. It was in several places and uh, probably most, um, most famously on Toronto Island. There's an island uh, out in Lake Ontario just off of Toronto. And it was at Toronto Island. Then it went to a couple of other towns. And um, eventually uh, in 2000, uh, thanks to uh, uh, three councillors in town, they they decided to, to bring it back. And uh, it, it started off, very, it was very rough. If it hadn't been for Gordon Lightfoot doing a, a free concert on Sunday night, I'm not sure it would have been successful. So in 2000, I decided I would volunteer. I thought, okay, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get a free ticket to the show. Well, I immediately got roped into helping out with setting up the festival. The next year, they asked me to be the, the festival organizer. So lesson in that is don't do such a good job that they ask you to take over. <laughs> and then five years later, um, we, we let our, our, our artistic director go. Um, uh, you know, she was very, she was very good. I, I really liked, you know, how she programmed the festival and everything. So, but that's a, that's a long and involved story. I don't want to get into, but um, we said, well, what are we going to do? Who are we going to hire? And I just, aggressively said, I would like to do the job. I'm, I'm very knowledgeable about uh, this kind. This is my kind of music. And uh, so, uh, you know, the, the board had confidence in me and, and I did the job for the next 11 years. And uh, so that was my, that's how I got involved. You also, uh, in 2017, you set, released a book that you wrote about the festival. Mm-hmm. There were there were a lot of uh, there was a lot of archival material, and uh, uh, so I I just was able to sort of uh, go through the uh, go through everything. Um, my wife, thanks thanks to her, uh, from two thousand um, up until twenty seventeen, she had kept any she had cut out any articles about Mariposa that were in any of the local papers or the Toronto paper or anywhere. And I was able to just, I kept it in a scrapbook and we just, we were able to just go through and, and I could uh, follow that. So that really helped with the, the, the latter, the latter day festivals. Um, others, the, the festival had always put out newsletters and, um, uh, so there was lots of material and I, I just kind of all synthesized it all together and, and it, and uh, one of the book publishers in Toronto was interested in publishing it. So we, we went ahead and, and uh, got, got a book on it. And the book's called Mariposa Folk Festival, A History. Right. And it, it, it covers the first 50 years of the festival. Is that correct? Yeah, a little 50 plus a few, a few years beyond that, maybe uh, three or four years after that as well, up until about 2017, 2016. And you've also written two other books. And what were they about? Well, <laughs> I wrote a, a trivia column for the. I, I, I should have been on Jeopardy at some point in my life, but I, I never got to. Um, I was always very good at trivia, so I actually wrote a trivia column in the Toronto Star for thirty-one years. 
So uh, in uh, 2000, no, sorry, 1985, there was a real uh, flood of trivia books uh, and trivia thing, trivia games and things like that. Uh, uh, I actually wrote a ghost wrote a book or a, a game for Isaac Asimov, uh, where I supplied the questions. He put his name on it and took the profits. <laughs> and uh, so uh, this uh, another writer and I, we put together all the Canadian questions into a book called uh, Super Quiz Canada. So it's not really a a literary classic or anything. And then uh, just last year, just this, well, just, this past January, I had another book published um, called uh, "The Lost Prime Ministers," which is a history book. History was my my thing in in, in uh, university, my my major. So, uh, I've always had an interest in political history, in particular. So, quite a variety there of of of, uh, <laughs> of books. And you are currently president of the Stephen Leacock Associates. First of all, who is Stephen Leacock? Well, Stephen Leacock was a, a humorist, and uh, probably we like to think of him as uh, Canada's answer to Mark Twain. And he, uh, we, we uh, for the last seventy-five years, they've given out a, a medal to the book that's judged to be the most humorous book written um, in Canada. And uh, so I'm, I'm the president of the group, and we, we, we give out this medal every year. And how, how could one find out? who the winner of the Stephen Leacock Award is, because that sounds like fun. Well, there's a we have a website. It's called leacock.ca. Very easy to, to, to look up. And it tells you the history. And, and uh, this year it was kind of a, a celebrity. Uh, his name is Rick Mercer. I'm not sure if any of you would be familiar with Rick Mercer. Very, uh, very much a Canadian um, uh, uh, comedian and and. TV host. Uh, he's been on TV in Canada for maybe 25 years and, and very well known in Canada. Uh, and, and one of his, uh, you, you people probably won't like this, but <laughs> one of his, uh, his, uh, his shticks was uh, called talking to Americans. So he would go down to, <laughs> he would come down to the States. He went to Texas. He went to New York, went to Washington and he would, uh, he would ask people, you know, uh, you know, what, what do you think about this, the, the Saskatchewan seal hunt and things like this? And he even went to Harvard and, and tricked all kinds of people who just knew nothing about Canada. And it's kind of a dirty trick that Canadians play on Americans because we know everything about you people, but you know nothing about us. That's, that's, well, that's valid. That's true. Mm. And all of your years working in, with the uh, Mariposa Festival, what did you find the most challenging? Um, <laughs> dealing with, with road managers was, was one thing that I didn't, did not have a lot of fun with. Um, uh, I think the challenge came from, uh, the board of directors, uh, wanting to, um, sometimes, sometimes, uh, I wouldn't say interfere because they didn't really interfere, but, uh, there was always the, the, the pressure that we've got to get a, a big name headliner who's going to bring in the, the audience. And the thing is, a lot of those big name headliners were not, you know, we couldn't afford, we didn't have a great budget for many, many, many years. It's only in the last few years that the festival has been able to afford fairly big names. And uh, um, so it was always kind of, you know, not, not I wouldn't say B-level people, you know, because we did have people like Arlo Guthrie and Don McLean and so on. But um, uh 
the festival, they, they always wanted me to, to come up with someone who would really draw in the audience. And that wasn't always the case. It was, there wasn't always an easy thing to do, I should say, uh, because you never know, for example, who's going to be a big draw and who isn't. Yeah, so did, did I answer your question? <laughs> yes, you did. Okay, well, that's our segment with Mike Hill from Mariposa. And now, Ron, I'm putting it back to you for our third uh, Thank you. Uh, and I, I urge our audience to check out uh, Mike's book, The Mariposa Folk Festival, A History. It uh, gives you some insight into the festival. Now, let's see. Mariposa started in 61, so I guess you're the oldest festival of, of, of the group. Uh, Kerrville started in uh, 72. And now we've got the new kid on the block. She's only been doing this from 1988. I mean, come on, you got to catch up here, Ed. <laughs> oh. oh boy, I well remember being think being thought of as the new kid on the block on the yeah. block as we now approach our 35th year. Uh, how did that happen? Sure. Um, well, Anne Saunders is uh, is our guest now. And for those of you just joining us, and uh, Anne has uh, a long involvement with the Falcon Ridge Folk Festival, which. You know, I'm, I'm speaking from New Jersey, and here in the Northeast, uh, Falcon Ridge is a, a, the biggest event of the summer. Maybe Philly has a little shot at it, but I, I think most of our, our listeners know, know Falcon Ridge. And I'm sure in the Southwest, you know, it's Kerrville, and in Canada, it's Mariposa. But, Anne, you were, you were involved in, um, in, in Falcon Ridge from the beginning, although I don't think initially it was Howard Randall that uh, started it. Is, or, yes. or were you both? Um, yeah. Howard Randall is, is the founder and the creator, but I've been to every single one starting off like almost everyone else here did as a volunteer. Yeah. And how did how did you become involved with 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 uh, with the festival? I mean, you, you knew Howard, I assume, right? Um, I knew Howard from another festival that he started four years earlier. Um, so a little bit of background. Music's always been a huge, huge part of my life from a very, very young age. You know, going through the days of being in the band, being in the choir, um, doing open mics in college, but mostly as a performer. And I never really gave too much thought about how those performers got to be on stage or, you know, in, 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 until I was there on stage, never even thought about somebody has to set you up and bring the microphone and run the soundboard and all of that because I came at it from a different thing. But I, I didn't get all that far doing that. And I ended up being in college doing other things, but music was still always um, a part of my life. And then I went to the first festival I ever went to was actually the Union Grove Fiddler's Convention. So it wasn't even called festival. And it was an old, it was billed as an old time Fiddler's Convention, very similar to a bluegrass festival, you know, and it was the first camping festival. And I'm, I think that was 1971 or 72. Mm -hmm. and, uh, then, and then there were some others that followed a few years later. But the big involvement was when I first went to the Winterhawk Bluegrass Festival in 1984 which was something that Howard Randall and some friends had started. And lo and behold, I come to find out they don't really know all that much about the music, but they just really liked the idea of it and they wanted to put it on, put on some kind of an event that was different than the run-of-the-mill run events that were usually put on as a fundraiser for 
um, an organization that they all belong to. And so that's that's what I went to. And I and I met the organizers and I was a volunteer um, in the ticket booth. I sold I was a ticket. I sold tickets um, at the Winterhawk Bluegrass Festival in 1984. And I'd already volunteered at some other festivals, um, Clearwater since the late 70s something called Midsummer up in Vermont, a, a couple of other ones. But but I was just a run-of-the-mill volunteer. I knew the organizers for most of these these, and, and was very in, in, involved, but I just did my volunteer job and I went home and came back the next year. Hmm. And then with Winterhawk, I became more, more, a little bit more involved. And by the time, four years later, he started another festival that was going to be a folk festival. And um, it's it's kind of interesting because I almost didn't even, even go. Um, I was called by his volunteer coordinator, a guy named Norm Pedersen, who was a volunteer coordinator at three or four Northeast um, festivals, including both Falcon Ridge and, 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 he, and I, I knew him from Winterhawk. He also worked at the ticket booth. And he said, Howard Randall is starting um, another festival and would really like you to be on the on the ticket crew and all your friends are going to be there. And I said, I, I, I'd love to, but I'm already signed up for the Peaceful Valley Bluegrass Festival, which I've never been to. And Sam Bush invited me and it's this big deal. And I really would like to go, blah, blah, blah. So I'm sorry, I can't go. Um, long story short, Norm just kind of kept at me and finally talked me into it and um, peace. I never bit. I've never made it to Peaceful Valley ever in their <laughs> entire history. And after I volunteered the first year, I guess I told Howard Randall that um, I haven't seen your publicity anywhere. And do you have a press release? You know, and do you have stuff? About, you know. And he talked to me a little bit, and he said, "We'd like you to become our publicist." And that was something that I also knew absolutely not one thing about. But I figured, hey, you know, I'm. I'm a college graduate and I, I work in the bio, biological sciences field as a researcher. Um, I'm sure I could do it. Um, and it was pretty challenging, but that's what I did in 1989. And, um, and I helped out just the tiniest little bit with, with the booking, um, with, made a couple of suggestions. And they kind of had a, a little bit of a committee at that time. But my very first suggestion that I had to talk them into, and the only time we ever got them, was Allison Krauss and Union Station. So based on that, I got them Allison Krauss and Union Station a few years later. Um, and believe it or not, I don't know if she remembers this, that that Sonny was the one who said, there's nothing wrong with the way we're doing it. Because Sonny was on Falcon Ridge's booking committee also by that time um, in, the, in the early 90s. And she said, there's nothing wrong with the way that we're doing it. Everything is, is um, you know, good performers, but it lacks some kind of central theme, cohesiveness, one person. Sonny said one person should be the artistic director and it should be you, Anne. And I was like, me, I'm the person with the least experience of anybody. But there you go. Well, you certainly had the vision. Um, I, I want to touch on something that you, you mentioned. Um, you were a research technician, I think, at, at Cornell University Medical Center in New York City. So you've got that pretty important career and pretty uh, stressful career going on, too. How did you find time to, to do all of this? Um, here, the thing about being um, in, in a research laboratory 
is that they care that you get the work done, but it's not a nine to five job. So I could volunteer to do all kinds of things, especially during the summer, as long as I put in uh, enough time. And so I would just volunteer during the year to like, oh, Thanksgiving weekend and all the postdocs are going off on holiday. I volunteer to come in on Thanksgiving day and take care of everybody's experiments and wow. cells that they're growing and take this out of the freezer and do this and do that. And I, so it, it was the kind of job though, even though it was, it, it was time consuming, it was also had a lot of flex time. And mm -hmm. I also give a lot of credit to my, um, my supervisor at the time, Dr. Jeffrey Lawrence, just really loved the idea that um, that I was into this stuff and went to these things. And so he was just very good to me. Oh, it's good to have somebody like that to uh, allow you to, to, to be the creative person that you are. And and creativity, that, that's one of the things I've, I've admired so much about what you put together at Falcon Ridge. Um, you know, I, I think I we probably asked this of all the guests here today, but the word folk music has a diff different definition for everybody. And Falcon Ridge has kind of, as, as the other festivals have, developed its own audience, but its own style of performers. It's, you know, heavy on the singer-songwriters. But yet, you do have a very big dance component. You do a lot of different styles of music that are thrown in there. I, take, walk us through it. How do you decide who to uh, invite every year? Oh, I, I could I almost couldn't even tell you. Sometimes I think it's all like this... Uh, alchemical, I don't know. And and just like Mike said, you know, people say you need to have one big draw, but who will that be? And even if I had an idea of, and all of us have ideas of some people that would be a big draw, but we can't afford any of them. Mm -hmm. You know, so we have to find out who would be a big draw that's in our budget. And that's, that's very, very, very difficult. But the audience also, you know, tells you a lot about people become their favorites. You know, we've had many people come through and become favorites that we've booked year after year after year. And, and, and a couple of the big favorites are not what you would call like your typical folk music, like the Slambovian Circus of Dreams. And the Neils who started around, who started out practically being what I would call punk folk, I think the big thing is that they write their own songs. You know, they, 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 they're, they're very, they're great songwriters, all of them. And I just felt that this music was not, and I think our, our community, that folk music is not defined by that there's drums in it or that there's an electric bass or that there's an electric guitar, but it's, it's that it's, you know, music by and for the people, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it has to kind of be that and really come from the heart and not just be um, commercial success is not for front and center. And those have been kind of the, the defining that's by and for the people. Sure. Hey, if anybody out there has not been to the Slambovians at Falcon Ridge, I urge you to check them out next year. It is such an experience and, and it's a community experience, that community that you're talking about. Um, you know, I, I think Mike talked about this before about having a board of directors and everybody kind of having their two cents as to what uh, what should be on there. But, you know, you're the artistic director, so it's your call. 
but yet you do have that community back there. So I know I, I was watching some of the uh, Facebook postings last year, people griping and, and suggesting and not understanding what you're going through on all this. That has to be hard to deal with when you have a community that is looking up to you for these events. It's it's reward. It's very rewarding and gratifying, as well as as tearing your hair out type of thing at the same time. Because you realize that even the the fiercest gripers, they're not they're not doing it. Most of them, literally, not almost none of them, just to complain. They're doing it because they do really care deeply about the event, and they really do care deeply about its continuity and 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 health and and so you have to always realize and you do realize that that's where that's where it, where it comes from but many of them you know don't understand um some of the you know underlying things of you know why you have to do things especially during these covid years you know yeah. why can you only have this many people and why are you having pod seating it's like because you know we've determined that this is the safest thing to do and I, I respect you, obviously, with your background as a research technician, you have a little more insight into this whole pandemic. And I think your guidance through it and what you did with uh, Falcon Ridge really uh, helped, helped the festival to survive. And I'm sure you have some big plans for 2023, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But, um, you know, I, again, I want to talk a little bit more about the community and the atmosphere. One of the, the other big events is the Emerging Songwriters uh, Showcase, which is similar to what Kerrville does with New Folk. But I think yours is, is more of a jury showcase. Am I correct? Yes, it, it it's, it's, has its similarities and its differences. And that, that's something that Sonny was also involved in right from the very beginning. And we wanted it to be a showcase and not a uh, not something where there was a winner because there were plenty of other people that were doing that and doing it very well. And the very first year, it was only open to songwriters, and then after that, it became a performance. And you know, you can you don't have to have written the song, or it can be a traditional song or whatever. And but 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 Sonny was very instrumental in that in in bringing that to the the first time I think in 1992, and in fact, she was on that jury. Um, and she's been on that jury um, many times. Again, like Kerrville, it, it, those two events, are, I think for a folk DJ like myself, we're always looking at who gets picked because that's usually the artists that people are going to be talking about. And uh, it certainly happened at, at, at Falcon Ridge and Kerrville. And in 1992, we picked uh, Greg Greenway and Katie Curtis, and they went on to really be known in the community. Yeah. That. That's right. And I, I, I'm not sure not if 92 was the Neils. I think they were the next year, but they were, they were, um, you know, right up there. But yeah, several people that have become mainstays at all of our festivals, all three of our festivals started out doing that sort of thing, either Kerrville New Folk or the Falcon Ridge Emerging Artist Showcase. A lot of them. Yeah, Martin Sexton. <laughs> yeah, some, some great names there. Now, they always say location, location, location. And I know Falcon Ridge has gone through three different locations over its history. Started okay, well, our fourth right now. Oh fourth my God. Now, fourth now, that's right. Um, that has got to be difficult. I mean, I think during your years at um, Dodd's Farm, I think that's really where 
I think you're, the, the festival really expanded in, in my view from what I'm hearing from people. Everybody became so used to that campground scene and where the stages were. And it's just a beautiful spot. That had to be hard to to move. And I think you it wasn't a choice that you made. It's just the farm that you were working on. They had other plans for the area. Is that true? Both farms that we were on that were in Hillsdale, New York, uh, the Long Hill Farm, um, the owners got um, to the point where he, he was elderly and he wanted to sell and move. And Dodd's farm was just a couple of miles away. And Howard Randall, who's um, you know the, the festival founder, is also a, a contractor and, and builder and was able to kind of transform the Dodd's farm into almost the same blueprint, everything in almost, you know, people would come and say, I, I don't even know that I'm, except when I look at the, the Vista that mm -hmm. we're not, you know, so 30 years of being like pretty much in the exact same kind of setup with the stages in the same places and the same sizes and in the same juxtaposition to each other. And, and now we're like, you know, at a fairgrounds, which is, is really different. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess there's some benefits to being in a fairgrounds. You know, you have, uh, I believe, toilets, <laughs> indoor toilets now, which is yes. something <laughs> and, and <laughs> luxury. That's that's already there. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I think 2023 is going to mark your your 30th year as artistic director. It's, our, the, it's my yes, it will be my 30th year as the artistic director. I can't believe it. <laughs> wow, and the 35th year overall for for Falcon Ridge. Um, can you give us a little sneak preview? Any uh, hints about what we can expect this year or next year? Um, well, you know, we're hoping to bring back dance because uh, as, as a lot of people may or may not know, fully one quarter to one third of the people who attend Falcon Ridge only come to dance and could care less about anything else. Like literally, they, they don't want to ever leave the dance floor. And there's another number of people who come to dance and maybe leave the dance floor once in a while. But a lot of people really, if they could just stay on the dance floor and, you know, have somebody uh, run and give them a quick bathroom break and some force feeding and just stay there the whole time, they would, they would love that. So <laughs> It's, it's a challenge. It, this year, we felt like it was just unsafe because yeah. con the big thing at Falcon Ridge is contra dancing. So it, it's like a huge community dance where there's a lot of people on the floor at the same time. And every single person is going to dance with every single other person. So obviously, it only takes like one person that has a communicable disease like mm -hmm. covid or something else for everyone to have it pretty much. Mm -hmm. um, but we think that we can do it in a more limited capacity in inside of a building next year. It, it will be limited, but we are planning to bring dance back. So, so that's, that, that's one big thing. I know a lot of people have missed that. Sure. Well, yeah, you, you've done some great things to keep this going in 21. It was a one day festival. Actually, 2020, you did a virtual festival. 21, you had the one day. And then last year, it uh, was a, back to three days, a limited audience, right? It was back to three days. We even, you know, opened the campgrounds on Wednesday. So, you know, at, at the Goshen Fairgrounds there and had a Thursday night, um, something that's been going on on um, Thursdays for quite a number of years was something called the lounge stage, which is now morphed into the Thursday night music stage. And, uh, and, and that's a big deal also. Mm -hmm. um, 
that's become a very, but it started out as something that the campers put on. There's lo lots of things like that at other festivals. The campers got involved in something and it becomes a big part of the, of the, of the festivities, sure. you know? So, so yeah. So, so last year, you know, we brought back a lot of the, of, I think the spirit was there, but it, it was, it, you know, dance stage was missing. The, the dance component was missing. Mm -hmm. Well, you did a wonderful job. Uh, so all of you have done a wonderful job with your festivals and keeping these legendary festivals going. I, I think that we should open it up to it's kind of a group discussion. And, uh, you know, if you don't mind, could I ask the first question? Uh, you know, we, we, obviously, all these festivals have a legacy. They've been around and you all been around and involved for so many years. Uh, I'd like to ask each of you, what? Have you seen as the biggest changes in the folk community since you first took over and to where we are in 2022? Uh, maybe we could start with Alice. Um, you know, I don't really know what my answer to that is. Um, of, I mean, I think that the the idea of the festival itself and why it happens and how it happens is, is pretty similar. Um, you know, of course, all of the, the online and the, uh, you know, no CDs and those kinds of things, you know, that was always a big proponent was selling CDs and that's not, you know, that changed and we were doing the live CDs and then that they didn't want that as much. And so I think just how people are accessing it and whether or not they're, you know, even at this point, will still willing to come and be there physically present because they don't have to be, you know, mm -hmm. even when, if, even when you have an in-person event, a lot of times it's streamed, you know, cause you can reach people in so many places that you couldn't, or they can't come from, you know, Norway or wherever. Um, and so I think that a lot of it just has to do with the logistics of how the music is delivered and how people want their music and whether or not they, you know, everybody talks a lot about ageism and aging mm -hmm. out and that it's the audiences are older and you're not getting younger people. And, you know, it's like, I guess that's one of the biggest challenges still sure. uh, is just how to have a mix of don't lose who you got, but get new, you know, right. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be just about age. It just has to be about that. They want what you're presenting. Sure. Michael, I, was, I was the challenge at, at my festival as well. Um, you know, it started off in the early sixties. It was very much traditional folk music, you know, like British, you know, British ballads and Appalachian ballads and so on. And then, um, you know, by the 70s, it was there were a lot of singer-songwriters and things like that. And it was a very, very young crowd. When you look at the pictures, everybody looks like they're in their 20s. By the time you get up to the 2000s, everybody's gray-haired. And, um, and, and when you try to draw in a younger audience nowadays, you seem to have to have a more edgy sound. Um, I don't know if that's, that's me talking as an old man or something, but... Uh, <laughs> It, it isn't it isn't the the same kind of music that we listened to in the 70s and maybe that's a good thing i don't know um so um yes yeah, so i agree with dallas it's a challenge to sort of bring in a, a younger audience um 
Uh, I, I know at Mariposa the last few years, uh, with some of the the acts that they brought in, they were um, they were appealing to a younger crowd. And and I'll pick up on something that Anne said too. It's like I, I think, well, Mitch Podolak used to say this. Uh, I, I'm, everybody know remembers Mitch. He was uh, he founded the Winnipeg Folk Festival and and several other festivals in in Canada. Mitch used to say, you know. 95% of your audience is there just for the good time. They're not really there as folk music fans. And unfortunately, it, it, it is true. I, I, I had to I have to agree with, uh, with Mitch about that. So, yeah, that's a challenge. Yeah. And Saunders? Well, I, I do think that COVID has been the biggest change and that, that it's going to be some of those changes are going to be here to stay. But for the rest of it, uh, if it hadn't been for that, I think I agree with what with the first part of what Dallas said that the way um, access, you know, when we all started going to folk festivals, there was no email, there was no internet, there was no, you know, you got a you got a flyer or you looked at it in the back of Pickin magazine, and yet sent away in the mail for your tickets months in advance and had to make all sorts of plans. You know, you couldn't like a throw your GPS on and look, you really had a plan how you were going to do it and how you were going to get there. Um, and, and if you didn't, then you just, then, then you were just willing to wing it, you know, and, and do that. But um, finding out about it, et cetera, is, is, is much different these days. And I think a lot of people um, don't maybe even realize that now that there are so many more choices um, to seeing something, seeing something live um, on the internet, you know, it's it, the audience has been split into no matter how old they are, how young they are. There's many, many, many more choices of what of entertainment, and a lot of it's right in your own living room. Okay, my first question: <laughs> I basically grew special moments, be they wonderful, memorable, or be they dis total disasters. <laughs> so I'd like you to think back over the years of, of a major success, something that just really, wow, I'm responsible for this, or good God, what a mess, <laughs> how did that happen? And, and talk about some of those, because I, I always find those fascinating. Dallas? Well, I think many of the, the special moments for me, particularly after I became the producer, was like I didn't plan on being the MC because, you know, just didn't. But I couldn't find anybody that would do it, particularly without being paid, which I didn't have any more budget to pay that many more people. So I just got up there. And so, you know, the fact that it turned into something that was my biggest joy surprised me. Um, I loved being on the stage. I loved talking to, I just talked to people like they were a room full of my friends. It was just a bigger room and getting to talk about why I picked particular artists to come, where I met them, how I saw them, why I liked the first time I ever heard, I don't know, Dave Gunning, John Fulbright. Um, you know, the list is huge. Um, and how when I heard them, I said, okay, Kerville has to hear these artists. And so that's kind of what my joy in it was, was saying, these are so special. And, you know, I wanted you 
to hear them. And I guess, you know, there, there were certain storms were our biggest disaster. I mean, we'd be on stage and all of a sudden, without warning, there would be like a major practically a tornado come through and everybody's tents were flying across the street and, you know, we had to shut everything down. And, and I guess it was uh, Emmylou Harris and, and um, Rodney Crowell. That was the one night of that festival that we had a storm like that and we had to evacuate. And the rest of the festival went on. But of course, the one time we had a sponsor, the money to bring them in and they didn't get to play. <laughs> You know, it was sort of like, what? <laughs> Come on. Uh, and uh, so I guess, you know, in as far as performer disasters, that would be one. Mike? Um, well, I think a lot of my, um, my pleasant memories uh, involved, you know, certain performers really hitting it off with the audience. Like the very first year that I was, that I programmed the festival, my Sunday night headliner was, was Don McLean. And I remember some people thinking, oh, oh Don, Don McLean's a has-been. He hasn't been, uh, he hasn't had a, a hit record in years. And, and, but you know, he had such a great catalog. And then when he actually did show up and he sang all his big songs and ended with the entire audience standing up, singing American Pie along with them. It, it was, um, it, it makes me a little bit emotional right now when I think about it. It was so nice. Same thing happened um, about three years later, the 50th anniversary. <clears throat> we invite, <coughs> excuse me, we invited back um, all the, the, the big names who had been, uh, who had been there early on, uh, even the ones who were there 50 years before. So two of the people who were at the very first Mariposa and then came to the 50th were Ian and Sylvia. And when they sang Four Strong Winds, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. And so th those were the kind of nice things. And then th there were the, the headliners who, who uh, showed up in their bus, stayed in the bus all day drinking, <laughs> and uh, then arrived at the stage, <laughs> drunk as a skunk, um, surly with the audience. And uh, I won't mention her name. What <laughs> <laughs> are her initials? <laughs> I won't even do that, but that was one of my bad experiences with, with one of the performers, but mo most of them were, were very magical. Some of the performers became friends, um, you know, so, uh, but, but it was really like getting those performers to uh, connect with the audience. That, that was the, the thing that sort of made me, me feel good about uh, the job I had done as, as an AD. And? You know, it, Falcon Ridge has had its uh, tornado year also, but I'm going to say that's kind of getting through that was like number two and a, a far number two to the very first, which started out as just such a horrifying moment and a tragedy was a week before um, Falcon Ridge 2002, I'm pretty sure 2002, 20 years ago, Dave Carter had a massive heart attack and passed away one week before opening day of Falcon Ridge and Dave and Tracy were our Saturday night in the middle of Heart of Saturday Night headliners. And the challenge was, um, you know, they're, they're, what, what will we do with that spot on such short notice? Um, and the, um, at, the, at the time, Fleming Tamulevich, which was the agent, were, we should just cancel Tracy is just a couple of hours away, still in a motel room, just in such a state of 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 total 
not denial, but really not knowing what to do with herself. And so we made a decision um, that Dave, I, I made the decision. It fell to me to make the decision that Dave Carter's music will be in that spot. However, we have to do it. So we had like five days to pull together a tribute to Dave, to Dave Carter in which Tracy um, took part and almost every single performer took part. I picked the songs. I decided who would do them. I mean, there was some, you know, but 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 when you say benevolent dictator, I was like, this is the song I've picked for you, or these three songs. What do you? Because because we had to do it very quickly. We couldn't let everybody just. Oh, I think I, you know, I might want to do this. I might want to do that. We we had to get it done. We had to get it organized. We had to tell people what what order they were going to go in, how it was going to work, and we also had to get we we had Tracy come to us immediately the very next day and stay with our site crew on site, which she says to this day was the best thing that that could have happened. It was, you know, uh, something that she'll never forget, and that went a long way to enable her to heal from this, you know, totally unexpected devastation of her entire life at that moment. And it was one of the greatest um, things that ever happened on our stage. And of course, not, no one got through it without crying. Yeah. No one, not in the audience, not on stage, no one. Yeah, and I, I'm sure it's something the audience is, uh, stays with them too forever. Uh, and, and, and again, getting back to the idea of community, you know, it's what makes festivals such a, a brigadoon kind of experience of getting together once a year is moments like that, where whether it's sharing grief together, celebrating a life, or just the joy of discovery. I, I think that's really what makes these festivals so important. And, and my next question is, is also about discovery. Uh, and I'm sure as directors, you've all had to pre-listen to people. You don't just book somebody blind, but, has there been an artist that you heard for the first time how to bring them on stage and say, wow, I want everybody at this festival to hear this person? Has there been one particular artist uh, that you can, can think of that fits that bill? Dallas? Uh, one? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, I mentioned a couple of them a minute ago. Um, I, I can tell you exactly the spot I was in at Folk Alliance the first time I heard Don Fulbright. Um, and I, I said, he's got to come to Kerrville, you know, and, and for me, the same thing has happened with, um, I mean, I could probably give you a long list, but the, the two that really come to my mind the most at this moment are John and Dave Gunning. Mm -hmm. And um, and 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 again, really, in truth, Charlie Acourt and 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 um, Matt um, Anderson. Yes, uh, but those are some of my ECMA experiences. I would go to showcases and I'd walk in and I'd I'd like be just like, oh my God, the the first thing I heard out of their mouth, and um, you know, and I think that truly Folk Alliance was was like that for me as well in terms of, you know, and and many of the new folk artists, of course. But um, just like I said, to, to not go on and on, those two jump out at me like just first thing I thought. Mike, you stole mine, Dallas. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dave Gunning. 
Dave Gunning to me is like, he, he yeah. deserves to be right up there with um, Stan Rogers and Gordon Lightfoot as one of the best songwriters in all of Canada. And probably one of the nicest men I've ever met in my life too. Yeah. And um, yes, and and the same thing, same thing. Uh, I went to East Coast Music Awards in Canada as well. And, and, um, and there must be something in the water down there because there are just so many good performers um, and, and like you say, it's hard to just just to name one. Um, uh, I, I don't really want to name any others. <laughs> Dave, Dave is the one that that really stood it for me. And Matt Anderson, I, he he blew me away. I saw him at a at a midnight showcase at Folk Music Ontario, and I think there were about five people in the room. And, and now he draws audiences of you know fifteen thousand. So. Um, and I like to think that I kind of helped discover him. <laughs> sure. Well, well, I, I saw him uh, the first time he was sitting in a little bar in the hotel doing a showcase. And I've seen him silence a bar that was very loud, very drunk people. First note, everybody shut up. And I don't know how he doesn't have a constant headache. I mean, because he's always doing this with his mm -hmm. hair and his head. And I mean, oh my God, I get a headache watching him. <laughs> well, well, I, hope, I, I hope our listeners are keeping tabs of these names. If you haven't heard them before, please check them out after this, uh, after this show is over. And how about you? Um, in the early 2000s at Folk Alliance, um, Ken Irwin from Rounder Records said, I want you to hear this woman She's kind of fronting this band, and he didn't really think too much of the band at the time. He really wanted um, to produce their lead singer, and that was, they were called Crooked Still. Well, they didn't even have a name yet, Crooked Still with Aoife O'Donovan. And I, I immediately called up the fest director, who, who wasn't there at, at Folk Alliance, and I said, I just heard this band, and we just have to have them. They don't even have a name. They don't have a record. They don't have anything, but, but we have to have them. And, and this is how I feel about them. And he, he reminded me of a couple of other things that I waited and the next year it was, was too late, you know? And um, so we got crooked still and we booked them six times in a row and we probably still would if they hadn't, you know, in, if they hadn't gone their separate ways. Um, so sight unseen, sound unheard, saw them the first time, had to have them immediately. 10 years before that, we had just started to hear this name. And then I went to see her um, at, um, I, at, I was volunteering at, at a place I was still volunteering at was the Clearwater's Great Hudson River Revival. And I saw Ani DeFranco. And, and I, once again, the festival director wasn't there at the time, um, but I called him and I said, this woman, Ani DeFranco, we absolutely have to have her. <laughs> so those are two that I, I remember that I, that I had never seen before. Alrighty, going back to being in charge, what is the most difficult part of the job of being in charge of a festival? What is the hardest part of it? Specifically for me, it was not having uh, a budget to, to book, even, even the people that weren't Bruce Springsteen. You know, it was like, um, you know, I, like I said earlier, I had probably one hundredth of a budget of most three and four day festivals to book 18 days. And that was children's concerts, schools, you know, all the nighttime concerts, the daytime, con everything. I mean, I booked 
over a hundred performers and I really had no budget, you know, to speak of and, um, convincing agents, uh, to, to let their artists come and play Kerrville and, and discovering what it was about it that made the artists themselves and the audience love it so much. Um, you know, I, I, I would have is if I could have one-on-one -on -one conversations, a lot of times I could, could convince people why they should do it. Um, but you don't always have that opportunity. You know, I can remember artists coming up and saying, what, what is this? Why, why won't you pay me? You know, and I would give them, you know, the whole drill and they'd say, well, I get it. I still don't like it, but I get it, you know? And so I guess for me, not being able to offer more money of, do no fault of my own, mm -hmm. uh, was really my biggest, um, challenge. And, and also Kerrville paid everybody the same. So no matter whether I was talking to Ani DeFranco or, uh, the last year's new folk, everybody got, because Rod created it as that kind of a system and producers would say, man, I wish I could do that. And I would say, be careful what you wish for. Um, because you know, the artists that had grown in their respective careers didn't want to be paid the same as somebody who had not. So I guess those kinds of things more, more budgetary than anything was my biggest challenge. I would agree that that was, that was my challenge too. I had a very small budget when I was first doing the festival and uh, we did pay people on, on different, uh, different basis, but the most I could ever pay a, uh, a headliner was maybe thirty thousand dollars, and uh, and that was that was getting on. That was like later on in in, in my my tenure as as artistic director. Um, so yeah, like getting the number of people. I also found it a challenge to find you know children's performers, blues performers, singer songwriters, um, you know. Uh, Celtic. Uh, I tried to fill in all the different genres as well, and it, it was it couldn't always be just the people that I liked either. It had to, you know. In fact, a lot, a lot, of, a lot of performers that I hired, I didn't really care care for their music, but I knew that other people did. I knew my audience did, so that was always a challenge too. And deciding, you know, <laughs> who is the audience going to like? And I'm going to say budget always just makes everything more difficult and $30,000 right now is half of my entire bud talent budget for every single thing. Yeah. Um, and I'm hoping it's going to be a little bit more next year, but of course we didn't have our dance stage, but most years I, I don't think we've ever spent more than I'm going to say $115,000 was the biggest budget I've ever had to book over 40 acts on four stages, including the MCs and the sign language interpreters. And somehow, sometimes I, I just don't, but, but we have had people willing to like Dallas play for us for the friends and family price because of they got their start with us and they're still gonna pay play for us for maybe half or even less than half of what they could get elsewhere. But for me, I think it comes down to that Every year I have a list of plan my plan and for each spot I might have a few different artists um, and at the very end I have to say no to a few of them that it's just very difficult that that I find really 
really difficult the last few no not this year because when you say no not this year you just don't know when the year will be you know um so saying no to people that you that you really know would be really great in this spot but that's the spot and there is no other spot because that's what the plan is it's it's so hard to to choose. I mean, there, there's so many uh, only so many opportunities you can give people, and you know, I, I think Mike, you touched on it earlier uh, about you know p- people seem to go to a festival because of the festival, because of the of the spirit. And and you mentioned you were looking at a picture of Mariposa from 1961 and seeing the young audience, and then looking at it later on and seeing how much older that audience has gotten. Uh, I, I think a big thing has always been where are the young people? Where are they discovering this music? And yeah, frankly, I've seen on the stages of all of your festivals some, some great young acts, but it doesn't always translate into getting a young audience. That's got to be a challenge, too. Is there anything that can be done about that? Dallas, any ideas? Um, if I could count how many times I've had this exact conversation and not come up with any solutions, uh, I'd you know, gosh, what I'd have, but, uh, um, you know, and I think that's still ongoing since I've been gone and I don't know that they have come up with any answers from, from what I can tell. Um, but you know, I, I guess one of the things that used to really frustrate me is that, and to, to go back to the, the boards wanting what they wanted, um, they used the term young people generically. They would say, we need young people. And I would say, well, we don't just need young people. We had artists that drew in an 18 to 25 year old crowd and it was a disaster because all they did was stand up in front of everybody and talk on their phones and scream and holler. And even the artists were dismayed at the way that they acted and they ruined the experience for all the rest of our audience. And so we don't just need 18 to 25 year olds. We need people who want what we have mm-hmm. and no matter what their age is, but we have to f- figure out, I guess this is the ultimate question, how to find the, the, the younger people who want to continue to do this kind of thing. It may be different artists and it may have a little bit of a different feel or look to the music and the songwriting. But if, 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 you want to continue to be a festival that has a community and is exists for the reasons that you've always believed your festival existed. It's finding the people who want to still do that, want to camp, want to have community, want to, you know, listen to the music, make their own music, you know, and so I guess, you know, long-winded answer to... <laughs> I've had the same conversations as Dallas has had. And um, I think uh, we, I know at Mariposa, they've made steps in the last few years. We were finally able to get camping after years and years of trying to get camping. We finally got camping allowed in our park. Uh, our, our park is a, it's a city park uh, surrounded by water. So it's a really beautiful setting. Um, <clears throat> but um we're now able to take half that park and make it a campground. And that really does draw in the young people, 
who bring their guitars, bring their banjos, whatever, and they have their own little mini festival after the show is over on Friday and Saturday nights. They they have their own uh, you know th- th- their own showcase if if you will, and uh, I think that's gone a long way to to bringing in a younger crowd, um, and I think you know some of the programming is helping, but you know I, I guess. You guys who are who are DJs in the states, anyway, um, yeah, I think you are doing something. You're you're, you're you know showcasing the kind of music that uh, we like to present, and uh, and that's important. That's that's going to uh, that's going to draw audiences to to the kinds of festivals that we put on. So I think we're we're kind of working collaboratively. The radio, you radio people, and we festival people. Oh, absolutely. Even though I'm no longer involved, but (laughs) how about you, Anne? The the same conversation of how to get young people to your event, festival, whatever has been going on ever since I've entered into being the artistic director. It's, it's like a, a huge topic of conversation. And I have to say that I've always thought it was almost irrelevant you know, and and I don't want to talk about it anymore because it's just not that important. Right. I just don't believe that it is. I, I believe what Dallas says, it's important to have a, a community of people of all ages and all backgrounds who want to be part of your community. And just going for an age group is a, a, a terrible waste of time. I don't want you to think I was just thinking that we're just going for a young, a young age group. That was just part of what's what's happening. It's bringing in younger people. That's sure. all. I, mean. I, I always have kind to of... even continue. I mean, you know, you know, or go away. We are a niche community and a niche musical genre, and it, it's always going to be that way. I always believe in the uh, field of dreams philosophy, build it and they will come. You know, you just got to do what you got to do. And I think you three have been doing an amazing job all these years. Well, we've come to that time when we are looking for some pearls of wisdom because the elders you have been around, you've had all kinds of experiences. And what would you say to, speaking of age, (laughs) these younger people, what would you say to them? in terms of advice? Well, I think that that they need to figure out what it is that they want and create that. It's like, I can think of a lot of people did this, but one artist in particular used to always come at me and say, well, you could do this or you should do that. Or if you do do it this way, or if you hire that, you know, had all the answers. And finally, I just looked at him and I said, you know, I think you just need to start your own damn festival. (laughs) There you go. You know, and and then you can have what you want. And so it's it's that. It's like, you know, um, be real present in why do you want to just control something or do you actually want to be a part of making something better, special, inclusive community you know what are the the what is it that you want out of this and once you figure that out then you have a a, a, can create a plan about how to go about getting it and working with a team that's on the same page well I don't feel like I'm an elder, even though I am. And I I don't feel that I have all that much wisdom either some some days. Um, 
I, I think just carry on, you know, the way we're carrying on. Uh, I say keep doing what we're doing. Uh, stay true to the kind of niche music that we that we all like. And uh, and I think there will always be an audience there for that. You know, everyone can pick up an acoustic guitar and learn how to play and, and sing and, and maybe write a song or two. And uh, I think this music will, will always be there. So, uh, you know, stay faithful to it. That's That would be my wisdom. Absolutely. Wow. Well, this has been enlightening, and I, I'm already looking forward to the spring and summer when all your festivals are back in place and uh, so many others, too, that are, that are taking place across North America. And I do hope our audience will check out some of these events. Uh, thank you all for being here today. This has just been amazing. This has been a really fun session. Thanks. Yeah. It's been, thank you for inviting us. Uh, thank you, Dallas Allen and Mike Hill and Ann Saunders, uh, Kerrville, Mariposa, and uh, Falcon Ridge. We thank you for being with us, and we wish you all the success. And Sonny, thank you for allowing me to be part of this again. This is such a wonderful event, our podcast. Uh, we have another one next month. I think we're going to be going to the archives to uh, to right. look into one of our one of the tr tr great panel discussions that you did at NERFA. Well, and Ron Alesco, thank you. And thank you for creating Folk Music Notebook, which is one of the places you can hear these podcasts. Well, thanks so much. Well, we're going to say goodbye now. And uh, again, our thanks to everybody at NERFA for helping to sponsor this and to Aiden Lewis for doing sound today and for all of you for listening. And join us again next month for another edition of Wisdom of the Elders. Again, our thanks to Dallas Allen, Mike Hill, and Ann Saunders. We'll see you all again. And of course, Sunny Oaks. <laughs> we'll see you again next month. Take care, everybody. Thank you, everybody. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thanks a lot.